good to know.
afternoon everyone and welcome everyone joining us wherever you are in the world. Um, I'm Daniel Oyola, Corp Program Coordinator here at the Berkman Client Center and we're here to introduce our special guest this afternoon. Um, Eric Osiakwan is an entrepreneur and investor with 15 years of ICT industry leadership across Africa and the world. He's worked in 32 African countries setting up ISPs, ISPAs, IXPs and high-tech startups. Some of these companies and organizations include um, Angel Africa, Angel Fair Africa, Ghana Cyber City, Pen Plus Bytes, African Elections Portal, uh, FOSFA, WAPCO, GISPA, FISPA, GMVC Internet Research, and Hand Ghana Connect. Um, and he serves on the boards of Farmer Line, Forhe, Taranga Solutions, um, Sequeries, Ampit, Same Logic, eCampus, Visap, and One Gym Foods. Bit of a mouthful. Some of which are his own investments as well. Um, he was part of the team that built the team's TEAMS, Submarine Cable in East Africa, and an ICT consultant for the World Bank, Source Foundations, UNDP, USAID, USDOJ, USDOS, as well as African governments and private firms. He authored The Kings of Africa Digital Economy, co-authored The Open Access Model, Negotiating the Net, The Politics of Internet Diffusion in Africa, and the Internet in Ghana, with the Mosaic Group. He was invited to contribute ideas to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair's Commission for Africa. Eric's a PopTech, TED, Stanford, and MIT fellow, and he was previously a fellow here at the Berkman Klein Center. So without further ado, let him take the floor. All right, thank you, uh, Dan, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be back here. Uh, the last time I gave a talk here was with E10 in a bit, I think it was 2008, 2009, uh, when uh, we were doing this fellowship program on building internet infrastructure in Africa. Um, and we had just uh, finished building the team submarine cable in Kenya. Um, so it's good to be back after many years to kind of give a little bit of update on, on what has been happening on the continent, most importantly. But also to kind of zero in on, on the kings of Africa, which is sort of the five countries that have been investing and watching. And, and I think these are the countries that are leading the digital economy in Africa. Um, I currently run Shanzo Capital, uh, which is an early stage uh, micro growth fund. Uh, that primarily invest in the king's countries, and we invest in technology companies that are essentially creating scale. Uh, we, we essentially um, write small checks, but most importantly also bring uh, a lot of our experience and our skills to these entrepreneurs. Uh, we call that mental financing. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of a view on what has been happening on the continent. First, I always like to give up the slide um, when I'm giving a talk on Africa, because sort of it pulls African perspective that Africa is very huge. You can literally fit uh, you, the US, China, Europe, uh, France, and India into Africa. Um, so Africa is very huge landmass, and that's very important for you to keep it in mind. And I'll, and I'll tell you why the kings are very important in relation to this context. Um, so what has been happening in Africa in the last 20 years is quite phenomenal. A lot of development economists thought that Africa should go the route where everywhere else in the world went, which is pretty much industrialization, right? So you move from a green economy to an industrial economy and again to a formation age. Africa actually segued into the information age without necessarily industrializing. So I'm one of those who believe that um, you, industrialization is important, but it's not a, 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 it's essential. It's not uh, essentially what you need to be able to get an information age that you can actually segue. And Africa is proving that with mobile. Where today there are a billion mobile users on the continent. If you look at the growth numbers, in some cases, uh, we currently, these are numbers uh, from 20, 2014, 
But if you look at these numbers today, we surpassed the U.S. and Europe and most parts of the world, including China. Um, and so cell phone ownership has been a big part of Africa. And the second thing that happened, as I mentioned, was the, the development of submarine cables. And these submarine cables brought broadband. And these submarine cables connected with the mobile networks to create what I call the mobile web. So Africa is mobile first. It's mobile only. And so there's no cable infrastructure. It's almost non-existent to see cable infrastructure in Africa, which is part of the reason why mobile became the infrastructure that people went to. And with the availability of submarine cables, the web was being seen by most Africans through, the, through their mobile phones. And so Africa is a mobile first continent. And we begin to see this manifest in how people using Facebook, the growth of Facebook numbers. And the fact that that has also created a new phenomenon where Africa's millennials and digital natives are beginning to create their own Facebook, right? They're going to believe that by learning how to write code, they can create solutions to problems that they see in their everyday life, and by that, creating the next set of businesses. And, and this is the phenomenon that I really believe is going to make the greatest impact on Africa. Today, if you look at the impact numbers, uh, mobile is contributing about 6% to Africa's GDP, which is higher than in other parts of the world. And this is studied by, done by GSMA. Um, and so this impact you're seeing is the connectivity impact, right? So let me segment that for you. Between um, 1998 and 2008, Africa was mostly connecting to the rest of the world and pretty much consuming technology, right? Post that, what we're seeing now is a new generation of entrepreneurs who are building technology. So this generation is the creative era. And I really believe that, that impact is going to be more than double or triple the kind of impact that we're seeing already. And that's why we really believe that Africa is going to be a very competitive part of the 21st century economy because of these innovations that we're seeing. Now, <clears throat> you may ask me, what are some of the evidence to support this? If you take the connectivity era, this is a study that was done by Freshfields. What they did was they looked at 40 TMT companies, telecom media and technology companies, in uh, 18 stock markets in Africa. And over a decade, they realized that if the annual return was 19%. In other words, if you invested in a company like MTN, which was non-existent in 1990, and you were trading the shares of MTN, over a decade, you made 19% return. You made more than three times what oil and gas made over that period. Right? So even with the connectivity era, the, the industry created a lot of returns. Right. So so much that oil and gas is nowhere to compare. And the Africa MS index, which is 11%, cannot even compete. Right? And, and this uh, report is captioned Africa poised for a tech takeoff. And if you read the report in detail, what they're trying to say is that this was a connectivity era. So the creative era will create much more impact. And that's the takeoff that the world is going to be, going to be seeing. And this is fueled by an emerging middle class. So if you look at this map, very interesting, this was stated out by McKenzie, and I want to give them all the, the credit. So, so you see here that, yes, the rich gap is you know, going up. But most importantly, you see the poor gap is closing. What is happening is that more and more people are entering into the middle class, leveraging technology. And, and this is what is fueling the adoption and the growth that we're seeing. Um, uh, McKenzie projected that in the next 10 years, we're going to see a phenomenal leap in Africa, which is that if you take internet penetration, it's going to grow by 50%. If you take internet users, it's going to hit uh, almost more than a half a billion. And e-commerce is going to be about $300 billion in e-commerce transactions. Right? So, and this is going to be fueled by the creativity 
error. And, and so <clears throat> I think that these creative uh, uh, entrepreneurs are coming out of this network of incubators and accelerators that you see around the continent. These are the innovation hotspots. Today, this probably this number is doubled already since this map was uh, produced. So there's quite a lot happening on the continent in terms of entrepreneurs creating technology and leapfrogging. And what we're really seeing is the mobile web platform becoming the platform for disruption, where it's disrupting climate, uh, agriculture, so existing markets, right? Existing markets are being disrupted to a very large extent by the mobile phenomenon, right? So if you take mobile money, one of the challenges in Africa was the adoption of cards, uh, which is quite normal here in the U.S. and in Europe. But in Africa, it was hard to do that. But mobile is done that. Now, most people keep their money electronically on their phone through mobile money. And that is for the whole new, um, you know, online economy, where now Africa actually leads the world in fintech innovation because of this uh, incredible um, developments. And we begin to see this form the younger generation of Africans who, before my time, I mean, in my time, you know, if you went to college, you know, you, you, know, you had two options, get a job after school or fly, get out of the country, right? Today, you have entrepreneurs who are saying, no, I can actually create a business in Africa. One of the companies that backed a uh, very interesting story is a guy called Keldick. This guy's first startup failed. So when he school in Ghana, finished and started his first company that didn't work, and he had an opportunity to come to the U.S., you would have expected that, okay, his company failed. He came to U.S. just find something to do and stay here. His uncle actually lives here. He came here and interned at the laundry for nine months, basically learning the skills of the laundry business. Because his next startup, he wanted to disrupt the laundry industry. And when he finished, he went back to Africa and started a company called Forhey, F-O-R-H-E-Y.com, which is basically an Uber for laundry. So the same way you order laundry, he's built an app where you can, the same way you order Uber, you can order a laundry, right? I mean, this guy's story, I say that because it's quite phenomenal in a lot of ways, because he could have stayed here. His uncle is here. He, could have, he had family here, right? But he realized that I had better opportunity in Africa to, kill the, to create a business. And so he went back and started this company. And when he told me the story, I didn't have a choice than to be part of it, right? And you're going to see this in a lot of younger generation Africans who are really taking their destiny into their hands. And they are the ones creating and building these companies that we're talking about. And we find them in the king's countries, the key countries are the five countries that, as I said, I believe are leading the digital economy, which is Kenya, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. And you ask me, how did I come by the kings? So I built a criteria. Um, the criteria essentially has five main components. I'll go through them very quickly, because I want to open this up to questions uh, very quickly. So economic growth is one, a private telecom sector, tech infrastructure, entrepreneurial ecosystem, and pro-innovation policy. I've actually written a chapter on this. Um, so if you Google the kings of Africa with my name, you'll see the whole, so, which I'm writing into a book uh, eventually. It's going to be a book on investment in Africa. Um, and here are some numbers on the kings countries. Again, if you Google, you can see these numbers. Um, and I kind of came up with some uniqueness of the kings, which represent to a very large extent the elements that uh, an entrepreneur needs. So I say the Kenyans are smooth, the Kenyan smoothness, right? The Ivorian persistence, the Nigerian hustle. Our Nigerian friends can hustle anywhere. Um, the Ghanaian integrity and the South African diversity. These are the five characteristics that I believe are very, very important for any entrepreneur to succeed. And it's seen in the king's countries. Um, so the question you probably have in mind is that, so how did this digital wave start, right? Italy started in South Africa in 1995, when a gentleman called Mark Shuttleworth 
built a company called Twart and sold it to Verisign in 1999 for more than half a billion dollars. And around the same time, Vodafone, Vodafone's uh, South African company, Vodacom, started prepaid airtime. And that became the foundation for mobile money later on. Uh, I went to Ghana in 2001, went together with McDavis, we built Busy Internet, and I started the Ghana New Ventures competition where we started training Ghanaian entrepreneurs on how to build businesses. And this was in 2001. And currently, the wave is in Kenya. Um, today, um, uh, I have a seen as the quintessential innovation hub. And we've seen a lot of innovation like M-Pesa, Brick. I can go on and on from Kenya. Right? And I think it's going to move next to Nigeria and then eventually to Ivory Coast, which is sort of the five kings countries to a very large extent. So um, let me kind of last two slides on what the kings represent, right? So if you look at it, Kenya is really representing East Africa um, as an essential market on entry into the East African region. And Ivory Coast really represents the Francophone block in Africa. Africa is not only Anglophone, it's a Francophone and it's also Lusophone, right? Very important. And if you take the I and gene in the middle, which is this is the important, most interesting part. So Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and Ghana is almost the population of the United States with 300 million people, but it sits on one-fifth the landmass of the United States. Remember the map of Africa that was so huge that you could fit the United States into it. So these three West African countries are the most closely knit market. Right? And so in terms of investment, these markets will represent a very important market if you are going to look at Africa as an investment destination. So I call them the Dutch bank. You know, ING is the Dutch bank. So that is the bank in Africa. Um, South Africa represents South Africa, where it all began. And I really believe that we're beginning to see a lot of uh, zebra cons. I, I prefer to call them zebra cons, not unicorns, coming out of Africa. Uh, this is the billion-dollar valuation companies. And we're going to see more of them in the 21st century. I believe the biggest tech company in the world is going to come from Africa, and most likely from the kings. So uh, I'll end with a little bit of my track record. It's pretty much all of this is online. But the most important thing I want you to notice here is that I'm kind of a pioneer in a lot of ways uh, in terms of the ISP revolution, building a lot of ISPs and IXPs and ISPAs, um, and then building some marine cables, helping start a lot of the incubation centers, and starting Angel for Africa, which is an event that I started in 2013 that essentially brings entrepreneurs and investors together, where the entrepreneurs pitch and investors write checks. We've had 15 deals so far in the four deals, events that we've done, totaling about 30 million U.S. Um, this year, we're taking an event to Ivory Coast, which is the last Kings country that we're going to. It's in November, um, and I invite you to come if you want to have an experience of these entrepreneurs. Myself, I've invested in about 10 startups in the Kings countries, plus I've had investment in Senegal, Cameroon, and Benin. And as I said, I've just set up Sanzo Capital as a fund that is essentially seeding these entrepreneurs and creating the skill that is needed. So that's about it. Um, that's my background. Uh, sorry, these are my contacts. Uh, you have my background. Most of this is online. So I think I'll open it up now uh, and take some questions. I know we have some people online. Um, so I'm happy to take questions both in the room and online. H how much more time do we have to add? Okay, we have about 30 minutes. So <coughs> let's open it up now. Yeah, I've got a question just um, from what you've seen on the continent about this certain issue. When I go back to Nigeria, one thing that really, not frustrates me, but really makes me think of what is really room for growth is in the GPS technology. Right. I know that there's a lot of streets where, I mean, there's the roads, someone just rode up there, and you, it really wouldn't work. Sometimes the numbers are just kind of what people put outside their own house, so there's no centralized system. I think it'd be really hard to implement that kind of technology, but I think if someone 
would it do the work to actually track down and like label all of this? <laughs> the infrastructures in place for Uber and all these delivery services to come in. And I was wondering, from what you've seen on the continent, is there any movement on that end? And which countries are really leading the way if there's anyone who really has good integrated GPS? Very good question. So as you know, necessity is a matter of invention. And that's what we begin to see. I at least know three entrepreneurs who are looking at this problem. Um, well, in general, I think it's important that there's a proper naming infrastructure, which is the responsibility of government. Right? And if you take set of markets, like Nigeria has a very strong good addressing system. Uh, that's one of the things. And I think Nigeria has a good addressing system partly because, you know, Nigeria didn't have a postal system. In Ghana, we had a postal system. So you go to a post office and pick up the mail. And I think it was part of the reason why the addressing system was, not, was there, but it wasn't used. But in Nigeria, they didn't have a postal system, so you had to go pick up. The mill had to come to you. Right. Then the other markets were uh, pretty much the addressing system is non-existent. Um, but there's a startup, for example, in Ghana called Snoo Code, who are trying to do, uh, build a system where you are able to use um, tagging and GPS coordinates as a way to locate uh, places and people and, and be able to then get access. Um, in Ethiopia, I met a startup, I can't remember the name right now, but what they did was sort of zone Ethiopia down and demarcate it and then give them tags, right? Which essentially allows you to be able to figure out things that are happening and places in Ethiopia, right? Um, I know other entrepreneurs that are trying to address this in South Africa and other places. So I think that, as you, you rightly said, you know, getting addressing system right is a very fundamental need. And I think that to a very large extent, though the entrepreneurs who are trying to address this, I think sort of it's in the remit of government to sort of be able to make sure there's a proper addressing system in place and the infrastructure is there, which is why uh, we really think that the government creating an enabling environment is very important for private entrepreneurs to then sort of innovate on the back of that. But as it, as it is, entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs, right? If there's no addressing system, they'll find a way to uh, create one. Um, and, and that's what we begin to see. Um, I have a question in terms of projections for uh, francophone and lusophone countries, right. economically speaking. Um, how do you see their development coming about in the next 30 or so years? Um, as, you know, as you mentioned, as we know, the Anglophone, Nigeria, Kenya, those are the ones that are in the forefront. And uh, I'm just curious to how you see that playing out in your future. Right. Uh, that's a very good question. So actually, if you take Africa, if you look at Africa very critically, half of Africa is Francophone and Lusophone. The other half is, half is Anglophone. Uh, but because of the language divide, unfortunately, we don't pay attention to that. So we have very little data on the Francophone countries. Actually, Africa, in West Africa, there are only four countries that are Anglophone, Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia and Gambia. All the rest are Francophone countries. And then Central Africa to village is all Francophone. Right? And then you really get the Anglophone blocks from East Africa growing down south. Um, so, so that represents a very strong economy. Uh, if you take Ivory Coast, for example, this year Ivory Coast is projected to be the fastest growing economy at 8.4%. And these are the World Bank and IMF figures. Uh, Ghana is going to bounce back at 7.2%. Um, if you look at the um, Francophone bloc, for example, they have a common union among the Francophone countries. So they all, all use the CFA, which is taxed uh, to the French uh, currency. And so it's a very strong currency. The CFA is pretty strong. 
Ivory Coast has a regional base uh, that basically you can trade among the Francophone countries. Right? So the Francophone economies are very strong. And I personally made an effort to start looking into the Francophone markets because these are very strong economies, right? And, and you cannot say you're in Africa without paying attention to the Francophone block. But also, the divide is also, like you said, it's a, it's a language divide, right? Fortunately for us, I mean, it is something that I regret. Like, when we were in school, you, you had French uh, classes from primary school. We just didn't take it seriously, right? Um, so, and in the Francophone countries, they have Anglophone classes from primary school. Um, and, and I think, on average, probably they took it much more serious than we do. Uh, and so I think that's where the divide is from, because if you can't speak a language, then you, you're less interested, you cannot communicate, et cetera. Um, so one of my views is that, you know, uh, Anglophone countries need to take the Francophone blocks much more seriously, because I think in the long term, you know, economic development is all about trading among ourselves. Right? The best way, the way that Africa is going to develop is when we trade among ourselves. And so it's in our interest to know each other's language. It's our interest to start trading among ourselves. Of course, we need to trade with the worst of the world. The world is global. But the reality is that, I'll give you an example. Recently, I was paying attention a little bit to the uh, um, timber industry. And I realized that a lot of the timber processing companies in South Africa used to import their timber from outside the continent. Meanwhile, there are a lot of countries that have timber, like Kenya, produce a lot of timber. And in, in the most recent past, they are now importing a lot of the raw materials from Kenya, which has totally increased the trade between Kenya and South Africa. That it's become, it's in the billions, it's so significant now, right? So I think one of the things that is important is just the fact that if we start trading among ourselves, you realize that a lot of the raw materials you need for certain industries in certain parts of the continent can be found in other parts of the continent. So you don't need to get it from outside, one. Two, you can access a common market. And part of the common market development is, is in these sub-regional blocks that we see. Um, ECOWAS for West Africa. Uh, we have the EAC, uh, the East African Community for East Africa. We have the SADC, uh, which is the uh, Southern African Development Corporation for the Southern Bloc. And of course, there's the North African Bloc. Um, fortunately, the North African Bloc aligns itself more to the Middle East. Um, but I think they're still part of Africa. So, um, I mean, on top of that is, of course, the African Union that is really, really trying to create this integrated Africa. Um, the recent developments on that is that the African Union is decided to issue, is going to be issuing a common passport for all Africans. Uh, first of all, I mean, if you cannot travel to another African country, then you're pretty much stuck, right? I mean, some of the interesting developments or uh, uh, history is that, look, if you have an Af American passport, it's easy for you to enter an African country than me, another African, having an African passport, which is in some sense doesn't make sense. But that is the genesis of the problem, right? If you cannot tra move into one country, then you cannot do trade there. Um, last year, the African Union, I think, did the most interesting thing, passed a resolution at the annual meeting where they were basically encouraging member countries to issue visas to other Africans on arrival. And certain countries are adopting it, Ghana adopted it. So now, if you're an African, you show up in Ghana, you get a 30-day entry visa without applying, going to the embassy. And I think that's a very good development, that we can at least move within Africa. Part of the reason I first went to Kenya, which is a very uh, personal story, was that I got an opportunity to go to Kenya on a very short notice. Within three days, I had to be in Kenya. And the reason I could make it was because I needed a visa to go to Kenya. Actually, Kenya's president, Kenyatta, and Ghana's founder, President Nkrumah, did a deal, did a bilateral deal. 
So the Kenyans don't need a visa to come to Ghana, and I don't need a visa to go to Kenya. So I only bought a ticket and I was in Kenya within two days. And I, I'm sure if that, if that was not the case, it would have taken me another two weeks or a month to get a visa, and probably that opportunity would have slipped by. So to a very large extent, I think that the problem is being solved, but we need to move faster. I think that having a, an integrated economy is very, very important in a lot of ways. The f last fact on this is that if you look at the intra-Africa trade numbers, actually, e uh, Esten Young has done some study on this. It's really growing um, in terms of Africa's trading among ourselves. So, so that's encouraging that we'll begin to see those numbers uh, growing. And I think that over time, with, the, with technology, is going to really help, right? Technology creates a lot of interoperability. And I think that as we see more of these entrepreneurs, and part of this is um, also our fun thesis. This is why we believe in regionalization or creating scale. Because we invest in companies that we can take into multiple markets. And so at an early stage, we are trying to get entrepreneurs to think Africa, not think Nigeria, not think Ghana, not think Kenya, but think Africa. And, and as you begin to create that, you begin to create a foundation for intra-African trade. You begin to build the next generation of entrepreneurs to think about changing Africa, to think about conquering the world. And it's not just thinking, but doing. Because if you have a business in these countries, you effectively see them as part of your economy. right? And today, we know companies are economies. If you take Google, it's an economy on its own. Uh, if you take Facebook, it's bigger than a lot of economies in the world, right? So I really believe that the entrepreneurs that we're seeing today in Africa are going to be able to help us surmount these challenges by creating multinational businesses. Yeah. Um, I, in your whole presentation, and thank you very much, um, it's really interesting. Uh, I just wondered, how do you see politics affecting innovation in the next... Um, in the next um, entrepreneurs because as we know like um, the World Bank is always ranking some of those king uh, countries as being as having a very low index when it comes to ease of doing business because for almost every compliance issue you have to facilitate um, the, the government officials right. and then um, the other worry is um, that in most of these countries, when there's a change in government, sometimes it uh, sort of changes everything in that uh, country, the whole innovation policy. And so how do you factor that in when you're talking about um, investing in Africa? So very good question again. And um, so I think this is changing. Uh, and it's changing very fast. So first is, if you take on the public policy side, you begin to see a new development where public policy is being done on a regional level. So for example, if you take the EAC block, certain policies are very common among the EAC countries. If you take ECOWAS, certain policies are very common. Um, and they're adapting this um, across the multiple markets, right? So for example, if you take ICT policy, pretty much I think in West Africa, the policy frameworks are very, very common, right? And if it affects regulatory policy. Uh, and you begin to see that, for example, in East Africa, um, today if, uh, my number, if my Safaricom number works in Rwanda, it works in Uganda, I don't need to get another number because the operators decide to follow a policy where they, they basically accept the numbers. So, so the same phone number I have, it shows up in Uganda, it works. It, has, it charges the same fee before it wasn't the case. You couldn't even use your phone in Uganda. You had to get a new number and you were charged. If you're roaming, the roaming charges are higher than 
uh, the countries from which we were. So it is changing. I agree that it's, it needs to change faster. So on the, generally, we all know that you know public policy takes you know it's a bit of bureaucracy, so it takes time for things to change. What is important, I think, the the, the very interesting development is the fact that some of these countries, especially the kings, are beginning to realize that innovation is leading the way and they're trying to stay out of the way when there's innovation. So if you take M-Pesa, for example, I'm sure that somebody at a central bank in Kenya decided to allow that innovation to happen. And that's why we, today we have mobile money. If somebody, if that person had decided to, you know, apply the law to the book, I'm sure they would have stopped M-Pesa from happening. All right. So I think that there is, there's a nice room where at a certain level, you want public policy to be relaxed so that innovation can lead the way. However, you also, at certain instances, want the legal framework to be strong so that there are no abuses. So for example, you can be financing terrorism through mobile money. You know, people can be using that as a way to finance terrorism, money laundry, et cetera. Uh, recently, I was in Kenya, and normally I have a bank account that I'm able to transact through my mobile money account. So I went to the bank and I wanted to do a little transaction and they said, we need to see your passport. And we wanted to see, they asked me certain questions. And, you know, I was kind of in a hurry, but on one thought I realized that no, I needed to slow down and respond to the teller. And, and then after, after the, 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 the um, transaction, she said, like, the reason we're doing this is that we noticed that, you know, terrorism is being financed using mobile money. You know, so now we're getting certain regulations from the central bank that we need to know the customers, we need to know why you were moving the money, what you're going to use it for. And so that's the reason we're slowing you down. And it makes sense to me. So in this case, you need some level of a legal framework to make sure that it's not abused. Right. The question really is, when do you lack regulation or policy to allow innovation to thrive, and when do you take a stand to avoid abuses? And I think uh, these are instances where you know it's a question of, and it's a case-by-case uh, you know, uh, element where, you know, the regulator or somebody in power then has the discretion uh, um, to, to make the call. Um, but, I, but I think that in general, our governments are really waking up to this reality. And part of it is also that the impact we are seeing. Uh, and secondly, I mean, most governments are today faced by the challenge of jobs, you know, and the way you create jobs is by creating businesses, right? So somehow there's a clear link and incentive by government to allow more innovation to thrive and more entrepreneurs to build businesses because by doing that, they create jobs. Hey, come on, Tyree, come here. So sit here for you. You can come here. Look at My buddy, Tyree, this guy's one of the entrepreneurs changing Africa. He's, uh, uh, he has a company. I'll give you a chance to respond at some point, but come on and join us. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Yeah. 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 Why do I, can I go to the back? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I was interested in your comments about the mobile economy. Everyone has one of these, yep. but it needs power to make it work. What, in, you know, what's the story on that side? Correct. Certainly, it's not as developed as. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So I think again, uh, uh, you know, uh, necessity is the matter of invention, right? We begin to see also a lot of renewable energy uh, innovations. Uh, actually, one of the companies that just raised a significant amount of money is a company called All Grid Solar uh, and M Copa Solar. 
uh, I think one of them raised 19 million in 2015. The other one raised about 22 million or something like that. Um, and this is actually as a result of these entrepreneurs building very interesting companies that are producing power off the grid. All right. um, so I think that we're going to see the, the emergence of mini and micro grids in Africa. Um, we are also, to a very large extent, going to see the development of other forms of energy, especially in the recycling and renewable space. I know a couple of entrepreneurs who are doing very interesting things with recycling, um, uh, renewables, um, and we can go on and on and on. And I think what we are beginning we, we, now, so what we begin to see is that there's some kind of convergence between those entrepreneurs and the mobile entrepreneurs. So I'll give you an example. What Encopa does is they've just done a new, um, the latest platform allows you to now use mobile money to access uh, energy, solar power. So if you are on the air grid, on the air system, the way you pay for your solar energy is by having airtime on your phone. So when you have airtime on your phone, you make a payment, you get power. When your unit runs out, you don't need to go to a metering, you don't need to go to an agent to get airtime. From your mobile money, you're able to pay. If you pay, you get energy, right? So I think that this convergence is going to create new forms and ways in which um, energy is delivered. On the infrastructure side, what we are beginning to see is, for example, the mobile operators are beginning to get into towers that are solar powered. So you go to a village where there's no power, and you basically put out a, a mast, and that mast on top of it is solar panels. And those solar panels basically power the mast. And in some cases, has enough power to now produce to give to the village. So most people now begin to create charging units, clothes, and so in a village where there's no power, the mobile tower provides connectivity and provides power. So I think that we're going to see more and more of these innovations. Again, this is a case where you're going to see the West learning a lot from the global south. Um, to a very large extent, the phenomenon you describe is because Africa has mobile. So some of the innovations you're seeing in mobile is coming from Africa. Right? And I think that on the energy side, we're going to see that as well. We're going to see some really interesting um, developments around um, energy um, energy sources, how people use energy, how people consume energy, because there's a lot of need there and there's a lot of entrepreneurs tackling some of these challenges. So with the information age, you see a lot of GDP growth, but you don't necessarily see a commensurate growth in jobs and employment. So how do you make sure that everyone can benefit from this economy, at least in the countries where it's really taking off? Very good question. So I was involved in a World Bank study that was done about three, uh, five, seven years ago. And essentially, we tried to look at what is the impact of mobile on GDP, which is sort of resulted in, a G in, in the um, GSMA study that we did. And one of the, uh, the outcomes we had, I mean, the main outcome was that I may be wrong with these numbers, but it's something around for every 10% uh, mobile penetration, it, con it connects to, I think it's 1.38% GDP growth in the developed world and 3.2% in the developing world. Which sort of shows that mobile had more impact in the developing world than the developed world. 
The second thing we wanted to do was we wanted to see whether there was a causality between the two of them. In other words, was the mobile growth affecting the GDP or was the GDP affecting the mobile growth? That's very hard to establish, right? Because it's almost like a two-sided a, a, a two sword because mobile growth will impact GDP and if people have more disposable income, they will buy mobile, right? But, but the fact that it was... I mean, we could establish that in, a, in, in the developing countries it had more impact was quite significant. To a very large extent, I think that we are going to see a little bit more of the causality now that we are seeing the creative economy begin to emerge. Because the, the simple reason, in my view, and I may be wrong, is that we are now beginning to see some, some form of innovation that comes from sort of the participatory economy, right? Um, as opposed to the consumption economy, right, where people are just using technology. So you would say probably if you build a mobile network in Africa, because all the components of mobile network are not built in Africa, you're creating more jobs here in the, in the north where the, the, the production is than in the south where the consumption is. Right? So, um, and that's why I think that the impact is going to be much more higher. And I think that the research institutions have a tax uh, to start telling us what what those numbers look like and what the causality is and and how much more i mean if i was a government that's one of the things i would like to do i'd like my research guys to say okay we want to create 10 jobs how many companies should we empower right so if you can be able to establish that then then you can begin to look at the numbers in more relative terms you know but i think that's an exercise that you know needs to be done and and will help a lot more in in being more specific yeah, I have a question regarding this uh, new generation of entrepreneurs that are, are, are being like trained uh, or developed in this in these countries. Uh, what is the, how does it look the the ecosystem like the education ecosystem or the learning ecosystem for them? What do they, what can they learn about that? Uh, where they can connect? Uh, how, how does it look like? Um, so the two things. Um, the, so in the, in the criteria that we looked at in the Keynes, we talked about an, uh, an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the ecosystem constitutes of you know, government, private sector, research, and academia. Right? I mean, you don't have strong institutions that are training entrepreneurs, giving them the right skill set, so, so that's very important. But what we're beginning to see is a lot of the entrepreneurs are self-taught people. And I'll let Bobby Tayo respond a little bit uh, and give you his own experience. Um, I mean, some of the entrepreneurs that I've seen, I myself, I'm a product of that, you know, so I got some basic education, but a lot of what I've learned is by being on the internet and being self-taught, right? Um, so the internet is empowering in that sense. Um, tell you, what has been your experience as an entrepreneur? Have you learned everything from, you learn everything from school or was this something you learned on the job? Okay, well, it's a, it's a combination of both. Um, uh, so I, I mean, have the real opportunity of getting an MBA from MIT. Uh, which has a strong entrepreneurship culture. Uh, but before then, I'd been I'd had some experience in entrepreneurship in Nigeria. Uh, so I might not be the perfect example of a homegrown, fully full homegrown entrepreneur. But what's mm -hmm. happened on the continent now also is um, with folks like myself going to start companies, um, I've had quite a number of employees go through who also wanted to do their own startups, but they worked with me for a couple months, learned a couple of lessons, and then went on to start businesses. Then when you also look at... Um, Companies like Rocket, the Rocket Internet Group, for example, uh, they, they own all kinds of internet companies like Jumi and the rest of them. Uh, the trend that we've seen is um, that um, Africans 
smart young bright Africans work for these companies for a little bit, six months, one year, two years, and then they go on to found their own companies. Uh, and then what we're also seeing in addition is people like uh, Eric, uh, uh, who are bringing in you know uh, risk capital, are also creating vehicles like accelerators and incubate, incubate, incubators and you know mentorship programs that bring in young smart guys who might have capabilities, either technical capabilities or just have a dream. <coughs> And then they come through programs, you know, where people they're exposed to people like Eric, and then they learn, you know, the process of building a business. So it's a combination of a lot of things: uh, incubators, startup accelerators, uh, working with founders, or working with um, uh, European finance uh, startups that are serving as some kind of breeding ground for for entrepreneurs on the continent. Any more questions? Eric, so if you can take us back in time to 2001, and let's, uh, let's pretend that you're going to do this all over again. <laughs> can you walk us through, like, what do you think? Um, uh, if you had to give yourself advice going back to 2001 to do this again, what, what would you tell yourself? So uh, that's, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can always do things a little bit better. Um, but what I've always believed in life is that there's no perfect condition. So uh, one of the things my parents taught me, which uh, I, I think has really helped me in life, is that there's not like a perfect time and a perfect condition where things happen. But when you have a vision, an objective, you try to create um, the environment for yourself. So as I say, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And I pretty much, I'm not going to give myself too much credit, but if you take people like Tayo, I mean, the kind of, these entrepreneurs don't have any, you know, uh, mentors. They don't have any road models. You know, we're all trying to figure it from, you know, just following our nose, so to speak. Um, and being very, very ambitious and very, very committed and, and going through very tough conditions to, to build and to create an industry. And I think... I mean, if you go back and look at all that innovation hotspots around the world, if you take Silicon Valley, if you take um, even here, um, if you, I mean, there was a generation that said, this is we want to create this world, right? And th that generation um, essentially sacrificed and took risks and did things that were not normal and, and created an environment where, you know, institutions like MIT and Stanford were built and became the background for all the entrepreneurism and innovation you see here. And I think that in some sense, we are kind of creating that. Right, which is why I am. I always tell people, you know, I mean, we've just been doing this for less than 20 years. I mean, Silicon Valley was built for more than 50 years. I mean, what you're seeing here today is many years. American democracy is 200 plus years. All right, Africa is just starting. So, uh, and but I'm not saying that's an excuse to sort of just be doing anything, right? But I think that when you put it in context, some things just take time, right? And 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 so it's important to have that context in your mind. If you ask me, I, I don't think that I would change many things. Oh, there's only one regret I have, which is actually taking my French classes very serious. I, I really think that if I take it French seriously, I struggle to speak French. When I go to Francophone countries, I, gotta, I'm, I went to Alias France and took a class again. That's one thing that definitely I would like to do properly. I would, I would like not to skip my French classes and come up with excuses why I didn't take it seriously. I really think I should have taken French seriously. Uh, but otherwise, I think I just took the opportunity that came to me. and. And you'll never have a perfect opportunity. One of the reasons Tayo and I really connected was he and I met at a conference, well, Angel Fair conference in, in Ghana in 2014, in 2015. And he wasn't going to pitch. This was the story. So we, there was a conference before our event called Africa Technology Summit. 
and he was there. So we met and we're talking, and he told me what he was doing, and I immediately said, this guy is going to be one of the best entrepreneurs because he was solving logistics problem. He was basically building a company that will be delivering stuff. And I know logistics is a big problem in Africa, right? So it made, I had a lot of respect for him taking on that challenge, right? Because it's a big challenge in Africa, and if he can fix it, it will, it will I mean, you know, so I actually gave him a chance to pitch at our event, literally within a day or two. Uh, we agreed, he, was, he decided to change his fight and stay, and I gave him a chance to pitch. And I'm sure he would tell you his experience and what happened. But to very I'm just saying, you know, we've all followed our nose and in some cases instinctively jumped into things and, and we're trying to figure it out. So there's no really no manuscript. Or probably we're adapting some man what is here in some way to Africa. Yeah. Question from the yeah, let's see some qu one question from the internet. Okay. So I think it's, it's a huge future. So 70% so of Africa's workforce is uh, agrarian, right? So agriculture is the backbone of most African economies. Um, I serve on the board of a company called PharmaLine. And the reason I, I mentor this entrepreneur, um, Aloysius, and, and a great team, Emmanuel Adai, two co-founders, is that I thought they were doing something that uh, was, like Tayo, quite incredible to start looking at how mobile technology could help farmers get better outcomes. Um, and, I, and, I, and this part of the disruption I'm talking about, that, that really what we are beginning to see is the use of mobile as a, what I call software infrastructure, as infrastructure to, to do things that were not there. The thing that you take for granted in America, like literally you wake up, even in your sleep, you can know what the weather is going to be today, right? Because there's so many sources of telling the weather. In Africa, farmers don't even get that information. You think it's, it's weird, right? But what FarmerLine started doing was providing weather information to farmers. So farmers will actually know that it's going to rain a lot this season, or it's going to rain less, and so know what to plant and where, when to plant. Very simple things like that. And um, the second thing we started doing at FarmerLine was providing information services to farmers, so farmers can communicate among themselves and get access to market. So the farmer knows that a tube of yam costs $1 on the market and not 20 cents, which the middleman comes to buy from him in the village and makes 80 cents, but he did very little work. Right, so now the market, ha the farmer has better outcomes on their yield because now they know the market price. They can negotiate better with the middleman. Right? Uh, the third thing that FarmerLine is doing now is that we now created a system on Kiva where we begin to give loans to farmers because we realize that most of the farmers are subsistence small farmers, right? But they're doing very well with our information services. So imagine now, now the person can do two acres, three acres, but they need a, they need a loan to be able to do that. So we now created a loan scheme for farmers. So suddenly this farmer in the rural area who before um, he couldn't take care of his family on his farming now has access to mobile, has access to information, has access to communication so they can increase their yield, they can increase their incomes, and now they can expand their farm. That's what... I believe it's economic development because you're not helping the farmer in the village to now be able to get better incomes. They can take their schools, their kids to better schools. They can provide better health care for their families. They can take care of their families better. I mean, if this is not development, I don't know what it is. Okay, so I think we can take one more question and we we got to uh, kind of wrap up. Any one from online? Anything from online? No more problem. Okay, can I take this gentleman who hasn't spoken, but really typing a lot? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It was extremely interesting talk. I wanted to ask, uh, where else do you see a potential in the coming decades for 
innovation that would come from the mix of the, the, the creative culture and the lack of the old infrastructure. Because what I, what, what I really liked about your talk is, is, is highlighting the fact that when you, when you don't have some type of old infrastructure, that actually might not necessarily be a problem, but actually a possibility. And we saw that in, in Eastern Europe, where I come from, mm -hmm. where currently mobile banking, GSM, mobile internet is much faster, much cheaper, much better than in the West. Mostly because when it started, we didn't have any of that. So we, we sort of built a new uh, infrastructure from the beginning. And so you, you mentioned energy, you mentioned, you mentioned the submarine cable, but I was wondering if where else you see a possibility of, of some good innovation coming out of that? Good. So, um, I mean, what you've said, and I wanted to say that this is not just Africa. You're seeing this in Eastern Europe. You're seeing it in Latin America. So the global south generally is, I believe, and I'm going to make my concluding remarks, I believe that the global south is going to lead the global north in the 21st century. Um, and the reason is the fact that the global south seems to have adopted new technology faster than the global north. And the global north has a challenge with legacy because you have old technology that you have to build upon. So somehow our disadvantage has become our advantage, right? And to a very large extent, it also means that the global south could be doing certain things more interesting and better than the global north because we don't have a legacy that we have to deal with. So we're going straight into next generation technology, next generation thinking, and we are going to be innovating in ways that will be hard for the global north to do just because of context, right? And that's why I really believe that you're going to see some of the greatest technology companies or innovations from the global south, and which is why I think the Keynes countries are going to be very important um, in the 21st century. Uh, if you take Asia, Asia has the ticks. So it's Taiwan, India, China, and South Korea. Um, and that's why I came out with the African kings. So to conclude, my bet is on the fact that the global now, even if you look at the flow of capital, it's beginning to really change. Um, the, 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 with the introduction of now Bitcoin and all this stuff, the flow of capital is really changing around the world. So I'm a big believer in the fact that we're going to see very, very interesting and innovative ways in which um, technologies apply to the way people live, people do things that will be a lot for the global not to learn from. And there's something bad about it. You know, we, you know I think the global north will, will learn some things and, and the cycle will, will go around again. Because don't forget, it will come a time where what we have done will become legacy as well, and then it will go around. So the world kind of goes in shapes, right? So. Really, there's nothing new under the sun. We're just seeing another emergence, and I think the South has an advantage in that sense.